for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Which is with some sort of quirky, jovial anecdote, but I've literally got nothing this morning. I was really disappointed in myself. I'm not wearing a pink shirt. There's nothing else to say, really. When I first started preaching, I did have a book which was called 101 Things to Do During a Boring Sermon. So next time I preach, if I'm asked back again, I might get the old boring sermon book out again and give you some ideas of things to do to occupy your time during preachers. But I'm not going there today. So so we uh, we haven't got any slides. I think there's been a technical problem. Um, So there's no slides today, but hopefully you will have your books with you. Um, it's basically, I'm preaching on the gospel, and there's four points that we're going to go through to help people um, remember the gospel, I guess. Um, it's going to be good to help remember that when we are talking to our friends, but also it's good to remember that for ourselves as well, isn't it, in terms of the gospel. So um, we've finished the up part of discipleship, if you remember. It's about up, in, and out, and we finished the up part of the discipleship series So if discipleship is learning to live like Jesus, then up has been about connecting with God. You know, the primary call of a disciple is to love God and to walk with him. So by developing and deepening a relationship with our Father, we find that we become more fruitful in our Christian lives. So up has been about developing that relationship by praying, by reading the Bible, by Um, dwelling on, weighing, remembering the prophetic word and being refreshed in worship. And all these things were about that upward life of a child of God. And the next three parts over the next few weeks are going to be about in. So this is about the development of our character and kind of lining up our thinking and our worldview with that of the Bible, with that of God. It's going to be about understanding who we are in Jesus, what our identity is as a Christian and as a child of God, and how that kind of affects our behaviour. And one of the key things also that the book stresses uh, is that this section centres, although it's centering around us inwardly, um, this development of our character also takes place within community, within the local church, within community groups, and this is where we can kind of work out those challenges that might come up as we kind of look at ourselves and look to develop our character. So I'm going to be talking about the gospel today, and then in the following weeks we're looking at how we walk in repentance, so that's kind of continually saying sorry to God, learning how to stay healthy, and actually living fully in our new identities as a child of God. So the gospel. Pretty big subject, and it's a real privilege to be able to preach on the gospel As others have done, I'm going to stick fairly closely to the material in the book, if you've got your books. I'm going to use the book as an aid. But there's obviously a lot to say about the gospel. And the gospel forms the basis of the foundations for discipleship that this whole program is built on. And those are, you know, that we are dead without God, that we have a transformed identity, and that we are now saints. We're no longer sinners And as I was preparing this, I was thinking how really this topic is central to this whole series on discipleship, isn't it? If we're Christians here today, most of us will probably be able to think about that 
specific life-changing moment when we gave our life to God. And the gospel has a specific impact for that moment in time, doesn't it? But actually, the gospel should have a continuing impact for us each day. So as we go through the gospel today, and as we go away afterwards, I'd say, you know, be thinking about not just how the gospel has changed your life, but actually how the gospel can continue to change your life each day from now on. So discipleship is about internal change. It's about us growing in character to become more like Jesus, no matter how young we are, no matter how old we are, whether we've recently become a Christian, whether we've been a Christian for years and years, discipleship is about developing and growing a godly character. And I've recently been reading a book by John Ortberg, and he underlined the, um, the importance of this when he says this. He says, God's primary will for your life is not the achievements you accrue, it's the person you become. God's primary will for your life is not what job you ought to take. It's not primarily situational or circumstantial. It's not mainly the city where you live or whether you get married or what house you ought to be in. God's primary will for your life is that you become a magnificent person in his image. Somebody with the character of Jesus. That is God's main will for your life. I also heard something striking when preparing this preach, and that was that this idea that we become like the one we behold. So we become like the one that we are sort of looking at. And if you read 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, it says this. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. If we're looking at changing ourselves to become more like God, this scripture clearly tells us that internal change starts by looking at God. You know, there can be a a big emphasis, can't there, on kind of self-help, and I think that's growing and growing. You know, about looking inwardly at yourself, looking about who we are, how do we help ourselves to change? But actually, if you look at the Bible, it's not about self, anything. We change by looking at who God is. It's not about self-help, it's about us needing God's help. Effecting internal change starts with God, not with us. So we become like the one we look at, like the one we behold. And Richard touched on this last week, and maybe, maybe we've heard this before, but it's really important to remember that what you worship shapes who you become and what your life looks like. You know, if we were to hold a magnifying glass to your life now, you know, what would it show up? What would be the, the main thing that it shows up? Would it be God and a worship of God, or would there be something else which is the most important thing in your life? You know, lots of things might seem worthy of worship, mightn't they? You know, your marriage, you devote yourself to your marriage, to your kids, even to the church. But of course, anything that takes priority over God in our life actually is just actually really idolatry. So it's important to look at what you're living for. And another helpful thing that that I came across when preparing was that life orientates itself around the heart. Life orientates itself around the heart. Our life will orbit around or it will revolve around what is most important to us. So the very heart of discipleship is developing a life 
that orbits around God first and foremost and nothing else. And this is where we come to the gospel because the gospel is obviously beautifully good news. Anything else our life is focused on can let us down. Anything else is shifting sands but the truth of who God is and what he has done for us is eternal and unchanging. And reminding ourselves on a daily basis of the gospel and applying the gospel to the variety of circumstances that we find ourselves in will enable us to do this orientating our life around God. And that's why the gospel is central to discipleship and central to this series. Everything begins and ends with the gospel. You know, we need to make the gospel the thing on which we think about and the thing on which we act in relation to every day. So in order to do all these things I've talked about, to help us make sure God is the main thing, we can turn to or we can meditate on, we can think about the gospel. And that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes using that book and using a good way of kind of remembering the gospel. So it uses John 3.16 and John 3.16 is probably the most famous verse in the Bible, right? Most people will know that, whether they've had a church background or not. And whilst it's really, really familiar, it's famous for a good reason, right? It's kind of, John 3.16 is the heart of the gospel, really, in one verse, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not die, but will have eternal life. Pretty remarkable? Remarkable. So, that's the book that many of you will have. Unpacks this verse, and that's what we're going to do. It explains it in four words. So it's God, creation, salvation, and restoration. And it kind of puts it into easily rememberable chunks. So we start with God. The beginning of the verse says, for God. And that's a pretty good place to start. The gospel, as with everything else, begins and it ends with God. The Bible tells us that there's only one God and that this one God is three persons and those three persons we refer to that as the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. You know, this is not always easy to understand as Richard mentioned last week but having a correct view or understanding of who God is is absolutely fundamental. It's fundamental to our worship and it's absolutely fundamental to our understanding of the gospel as well. I don't know if some of you have seen, it's kind of a story that's been going on for a little while in the news, about Stephen Fry. He, was, um, he talked to an Irish TV presenter about, who sort of has got people on, I think, and said, well, what would you say to God at the pearly gates? And I think he's even potentially was going to be um, done for slander or blasphemy. But what he said, he, he kind of launched into a huge tirade against God. Um, Stephen, Stephen Fry, you know, is a staunch atheist, but... When I saw this and I heard this, I just I thought it was just really sad to hear his views because he talks about God as being utterly monstrous and of deserving of no respect. You know, this is a guy who's a really intelligent man, but I I kind of felt just sad that his starting point of God is so completely wrong. And if we want to understand the impact of the gospel, we really need to make sure we have a very clear a correct view of who God is to begin with, because everything else can fall apart if not. So God's our Father. Jesus often talked in 
parables, didn't he? Stories, and he talked about grace, about forgiveness, and about what God was like. And there's a well-known story, parable of the prodigal son, in Luke 15. And this demonstrates the sort of father that God is. Some of you will know the author Philip Yancey. He's uh, written a book, What's So Amazing About Grace?, and there's a story that he puts into his own words, the story of the prodigal son. So I thought I was just going to read it out. It's a, it's a, little, a little long, but it's just a really, good, um, a really good way to remember and know who God is. So he says this. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents are a bit old-fashioned and they tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan that she's mentally rehearsed scores of times before. She runs away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it's probably the last place that her parents are ever going to look for her. Maybe Florida or California, but they're not going to come to Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but... Their lives now seem so boring, she can hardly believe she grew up there. She had a brief scare when she saw her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and all the body piercing and jewellery she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her drug habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on the metal grates outside a big department store. Sleeping is the wrong word, of course. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark circles around her eyes and her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper, Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled on top of her coat. 
Something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image floods her mind of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees blossom all at once, her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossom trees in chase of a tennis ball. Oh God, why did I leave, she says to herself, and a pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mum, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way and it will get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse. And during that time, she realises the huge flaws in her plan. What if her parents were out of town and missed the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologised to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the road and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often a billboard, a signpost, the mileage to Traverse City... When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingers and wonders if her parents will notice. That's if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect and not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 family members, brothers and sisters, great-aunts and uncles, cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing ridiculous-looking party hats and blowing noisemakers and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Always gets me. (laughs) Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She looks through the tears and begins her memorised speech. Dad, I'm sorry, I know... that he interrupts her. Hush, child, we've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet is waiting for you at home. You see, God, the Father, is generous. He's a forgiving God. And he is passionately excited when we come to him. He is excited to spend time with us. And he is unconditionally loving to us, regardless 
regardless of what we've done. This is God our Father, a Father who doesn't, who uses all his resources to bless those around him, a Father who has ultimate authority, but he doesn't use that to oppress us or manipulate us. He gives us freedom and free will, and he's an incredibly generous and perfectly good Father. You know, whatever our experience of a father has been, God won't fit it. We could have a thousand ideas of what a good dad should be like. And God, our father, will be better than every single one. He is our amazing father. So, second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Well, Jesus said when he came down from heaven, he said that he was more than a good man. Jesus said that he was a son of man. Jesus performed miracles. Jesus said that he was God. Jesus said to others that he was God. Jesus said that he was sinless. Jesus forgave sin. Jesus taught people to pray to him as God. Jesus said that he is the only way to heaven. Jesus heals. Jesus forgives. Jesus prays to God on our behalf. He is our saviour our personal superhero, our friend, and he is the one who has bridged the gap to God on our behalf. He is the best friend, brother, and saviour we could ever want or could ever need. He's our king, our counsellor, and the prince of peace. And although it's mind-boggling, he's fully man and he's fully God at the same time. And because of that, he could die so that we don't have to. As the book says, Jesus has no rival. He is completely worthy of all our praise, our awe and our adoration. And thirdly, we come to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. I'm just going to read a passage uh, from a book called Forgotten God by Francis Chan. And it's a book that urges both believers and the church in general not to forget the third person of the Trinity, not to forget the Holy Spirit. So he says this, Imagine that you grew up on a desert island with nothing but the Bible to read. Imagine being rescued after 20 years and then attending a typical evangelical church. Chances are you might be shocked. Having read the scriptures outside the context of contemporary church culture, you'd be convinced that the Holy Spirit is essential, as essential to a believer's existence as air is to staying alive. You would know that the Spirit led the first Christians to do unexplainable things, to live lives that didn't make sense to the culture around them, and ultimately to spread the story of God's grace around the world. There can be a big gap between what we read in scripture about the Holy Spirit and how believers and churches operate today. Without the Holy Spirit, people operate in their own strength and only accomplish human-sized results. The world is not moved by love or actions that are of human creation, And the church is not empowered to live differently from any other gathering of people without the Holy Spirit. But when believers live in the power of the Spirit, the evidence in their lives is supernatural. The church cannot help but be different, and the world cannot help but notice. The Holy Spirit is a person, and he's a person that enables and empowers us to live differently as Christians. He's a person to be known, a helper a counsellor, a guide. The Holy Spirit guides us in the journey to become more like Jesus that we're talking about in this series today. And like Francis Chan says here, with the Holy Spirit's help, we cannot help but be different and the world cannot help 
but notice. So when we're thinking about gospel, this is the God we're talking about, isn't it? Not some mean-spirited or distant God, not a cuddly, benevolent grandfather figure who's just happy to let us do whatever we want. God passionately loves us as our Father. Jesus is fighting our corner as our best friend and our rescuer. And the Holy Spirit is here to help us when we're in need, to comfort us and to show us what God is like. And this is where we begin when we consider the gospel. And I've taken the time to go through this because it's so important that it frames the rest of the gospel story. So that was God. And then we come back to our picture. Uh, We come to creation. So that verse says, for God so loved the world. So God created. God made the universe, our solar system, the earth and everything in it. And he made it from that heart of love that we've talked about. You know, we see in Genesis that when God made creation, it was perfect. He said that it was all good. However, this perfect creation was spoiled by us, by humankind. God created us with free will and he guides us, but ultimately we are able to make our own decisions, aren't we? When Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they chose They decided, and they decided to ignore and reject and disobey God. And this had catastrophic consequences on their relationship with God. You know, it broke their relationship with God, and essentially it broke the earth too. You know, it's this act that's had an effect on the earth, an effect on humankind ever since. And we call this rebellion against God sin. And it's what separates us from a perfect God. This separation created the possibility of us spending not only this life, but the whole of eternity separated from God. This sin causes suffering, sickness, and the division and the pain that we see in the world today. You know, going back to Stephen Fry's comments, one of the things he says that he would say to God is he'd say, how dare you create a world where there's such misery that's not our fault. It's utterly, utterly evil. But of course, it is our fault. At the core of the gospel is a realisation that it's not God who is evil, but actually it's us. Humankind is sinful. As a result of that first act from Adam and Eve, we now fall short of God's standard. However good a life we try to lead, God is perfectly good and we cannot meet that standard on our own. However, it's not all bad news. It's good news, right? Because next we move on to salvation. So we've got God, creation, salvation. If we keep on reading John 3.16, we see that God gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not die. So the sin that we commit deserves death. It deserves eternity separated from God. Because, as we've seen, God is perfectly good and he can't tolerate any sin. However, God is a God of unlimited grace and mercy. So he gives us undeserved favour and kindness by saving us. He is compassionate towards us by not punishing us in the way we deserve. The Bible says that the wages or the consequences of sin is death. God is a God of justice. He judges everybody fairly and as such somebody has to pay the price 
for the sin that we commit, the offences towards God. You know, as we would expect somebody to pay for the crimes that they would commit here on earth. But the amazing heart of the gospel is that Jesus stepped in and took the punishment for our sins. The punishment that we deserve was put onto Jesus when he died on the cross. You know, it's as if we're like in the courtroom. God, as a judge, has found us guilty and condemned us to death. When along comes Jesus and says, no, I will take the punishment for those crimes rather than him or her. God sent his own son Jesus to pay that penalty on our behalf. And this is so remarkable. We should never, ever get over this. But, of course, that's not the end of it either, because Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? Amen. He rose again after three days. And in doing that, Jesus broke the power of sin, sickness and death by his death and resurrection and coming back to life. And that gives us power to live a new life. It breaks the hold of sin and sickness over us and it means that we can start afresh. You know, for our part in this, we have to recognise that we have messed up. We have to recognise that we have sinned against God. We have to say sorry and commit ourselves to following Jesus. When we turn away from the way we have lived and turn towards Jesus, when we repent, we are forgiven and we become part of God's family. As Graham was talking about last week, we become adopted into God's family. We become a legally certified child of God that nothing and no one can undo. So lastly then, we have restoration. As a child of God, we have restoration. Like the last part of the verse says, we shall not perish but have eternal life. The gospel is a good news story full of hope. Being a Christian and believing in Jesus, we sort of use the term, we have a faith, don't we? So we've got a faith. And if we read the well-known verse in Hebrews 11, 1, we see where this comes from. You know, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, as a Christian, I am confident in the hope that God is restoring all things to his original intention. The hope we have is that God is preparing a new heaven and a new earth. Whereas we know, if you read the book of Revelation, there'll be no more sickness, no more sin, no more tears, and no more death. When Jesus rose again from the dead and appeared to his disciples in a new, perfect body, he demonstrated the hope that we also have as Christians of eternal life in a fully restored body that will be free from the normal human trappings of age, decay, pain, sickness, and suffering. We have an incredibly exciting eternity to look forward to. And we also know that Jesus is going to come again and that all people will be judged. Those that have accepted him as their personal saviour, their rescuer, will spend eternity in heaven. And those that haven't, sadly, will spend eternity separated from him in hell. Now this is reality. And this should instil in us that sense of urgency a sense of urgency if we haven't done before, if you're not a Christian here today, to turn around today and say, oh God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I need you. But it should instill in us a sense of urgency too in taking that message out to those that don't know him. We're going to have opportunity to do that, possibly like never before, aren't we, in the coming months with the Riverside. But it's also an urgency for us in living every night in 
every day in light of this truth, in light of the gospel. It's an opportunity to let that affect us in our day-to-day life. So the gospel is revolutionary and it's life-changing. So, in conclusion, this is the gospel that we continually need to be preaching to ourselves and this is the gospel that we can take out to other people. Discipleship and character formation does take time, doesn't it? But by looking regularly at the gospel, by dwelling on the person of God and what he has done for us, then we will become more and more like the one we behold. If life orientates itself around the heart, then let's have our hearts set on the gospel and the glorious gospel of God. Let's do this individually, but let's do it in community too, with each other, spurring each other on and reminding each other of these fantastic truths. Amen? Amen. Amen.